Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to the 100th Psalm, Psalm 100. We're going to continue in our series today on embracing the turtle. Now, as we've begun this series, as we walk through this series over the last couple of months, there have been two images that we've started every message with them, and I feel like it's becoming a habit. It's becoming a habit, and since we're talking about habits, we probably ought to do that, right? The first one has been the piñata, and asking the question, do we want our lives to be like the piñata, exciting, happy on the outside, but hollow on the inside? And then the second picture has been what? An iceberg, right? Something that has depth. It's beautiful, but there's depth to it as well. Well, today I want to start by giving you another image, uh, something else for you to think about because of a story I read this week, and so we're going to put this image up, and I love this quote, but it says, if you look at the anatomy, the structure, the function, there's nothing in the universe that's more beautiful, that's more complex than the human brain. And stuck in the middle of the human brain, somewhere in the very center part of the brain, is something called the basal ganglia. You've all thought lots about the basal ganglia this week, right? researching, looking at it. Well, I read a story this week that showed me the importance of the basal ganglia. It's a story of a guy that lived out in California, was living a great life. His name was Eugene Pauly, and Eugene um, lived with his wife of many years, of decades, literally, over 40 years. He had a couple of kids. He had some grandchildren. He had a great life, had lived a great professional life. And one day at breakfast, his wife and he were having a conversation, and she just said that their son, Michael, she said, Michael's coming over today and he's bringing the kids. Don't forget he'll be here this afternoon. And Eugene looked at her and said, who's Michael? No symptoms before that, nothing kind of going on. And so she took him to the doctor and they ran a couple of tests and started to notice that he was... um, starting not to remember some other things. And so they put him in the hospital and they did a test or two there. And what they came back and discovered was he had viral encephalitis, a normal virus that causes cold sores and other minor things had somehow made it into his brain and was destroying the part of his brain where short-term memory lasted. In fact, it would go to the point, it would ravage his brain. They were able to control it. They were able to finally get it done. But it was damage had already done to the point that he had lost about two to three decades of his life. Now, that's not what makes Eugene famous. What makes Eugene famous is that scientists discovered something in him that was unusual, they thought, at first. And so after a few days, the doctors had told his wife, he'll probably never regain any kind of function. He'll never be able to... You have to feed him. He'll be able to have to. He'll probably be in a wheelchair. But they noticed after several days, Eugene was doing some of those motor skills that had to be done to survive. And so they began to interview him and talk to him and see all this and study his brain and scan his brain to see what was going on. And something clicked for one of the researchers one day when they were sitting at his house. So they were sitting at the house talking to Eugene, and Eugene had worked in computer stuff. And so anytime somebody brought a laptop in, he would say, man, look at that. Back when I was uh, doing computers, it was a room full of stuff. And about two minutes later, man, look at that. 
When I was doing computers, it was a room full of stuff. By this point in his life, he was eating breakfast four times a morning. Because he couldn't remember he'd eaten breakfast. He would say the same thing, same conversation over and over again. And so they're having these conversations, and the researchers are testing his limits. And so they're asking if he knows this or that, and he couldn't recognize his kids, he couldn't recognize his wife, he couldn't recognize anything. And then they said, could you draw us a floor plan of your house? And he said, I have no idea what this house looks like. But then he did something interesting to the researchers, normal to us. He said, could, he said, I need just a minute. The researcher sat at the table and Eugene stood up and he walked away. And the researcher could hear in the distance. He walked down the hallway, opened a door, used the restroom, flushed it, washed his hands, dried them off, and then walked back. And they began to ask the question, for a guy that doesn't remember how to do anything, how does he remember to do that? Their interest spiked a little bit later because in order for him to kind of maintain some sort of normalcy in life, they they were hoping that walking would help that. And so they told his wife, we need you every day to take him out and walk around the block. Just not a long walk, five, ten minutes. He just needs to get outside the house or otherwise he's going to turn into a guy. He would watch the History Channel on repeat because he never knew if it was a rerun or new. And so he walked around with his wife, and one morning while they were getting ready, his wife uh, thought that he was in the other room, and he wa- she went in there, and he was gone. It took her about five, ten minutes before she realized he was gone. He was out the door. So she frantically goes to the neighbor's house, whose house looks like theirs, and wonder, did he walk into their house? And she walked to this place and that place, and she came back to her house getting ready to call the police to issue an alert when she saw him sitting on the couch watching the History Channel. And beside him was a stack of pine cones. You see, every day when they would walk their hike, their 5, 10, 15 minute walk, they would stop at a certain point and pick up pine cones. So the next morning, the doctor said, let him go and follow him. And what they discovered is, even without her, he walked his path exactly like he was supposed to every day. And as they studied it, They settled in an area of the brain called the basal ganglia. I know you're thinking, why are we getting a science lesson? Right? Here's what they've discovered. There's a part of our brain that is separated from our memory that does those things in our lives that we don't want to have to think about or have become so normal to us we no longer have to decide what to do. Now, what they've discovered is that your brain activity, when you start one of those exercises, fires up at the beginning, and then it goes into almost sleep mode while you do what you have to do, and then at the end, it fires back up to let you know you're done. Now, every one of us has this. How many of you have ever driven to church and then sat here and thought, now, I don't remember at all what I just did to get here. Anybody do that, right? Or how many of you have ever gotten out of your car, gotten out of the house, driven like you were going somewhere, and stopped off at your place of work or church, found out that you had made the turn just to go where you always went instead of where you needed to go? Think about even the fact of of getting out of your driveway. Scientists are amazed that our brains can put all of this stuff together without us thinking. 
Like you think about it, you have to get in the car, you have to turn the key, you have to adjust the mirrors, you have to think about it, you have to back up slowly, you have to check if you're going into the street, is there anything coming in the street, is there anything, you listen for sounds, you look for things all around you, make sure you're buckled, you gently come out, you start to turn and you turn that way. There are hundreds of processes that should have to be done by your brain to do that and you just do it on autopilot. It's a habit. And here's what they've determined following someone like Eugene is the most powerful part of behavior in our lives can be found in the basal ganglia. It will override our thought processes if a habit is in there. Remember those quotes from the first couple of weeks? Nothing is more powerful than habit. You are not what your dreams want you to be. You are the product of what you choose to do repeatedly. And here's the great thing about this. What they've discovered is that even though habits are very powerful, they can be changed and altered. And the whole point of this series of Embrace the Turtle is to get you to change your basal ganglia. Now, I didn't come out with that the first week because y'all would have run for the hills, all right? Like, what are you talking about? But our goal is to develop things in our lives that will be those habits that will help us to do things that will feed us into the place where God is going to move. So over the last few weeks, we've talked about meditating, memorizing the Bible. Let me just tell you, I've had some encouraging conversations with people in this room who have talked to me about the chapter of Scripture they're memorizing. People who are re-memorizing Scripture that they had talked about years ago. People that are trying new places of Scripture to memorize. It's exciting for me to hear. You have discussions about making prayer a regular part of your life. I've had conversations with some of you about new things you want to do. The church can help with in order to pray, to pray for our services, to pray for our members, to pray for our world, to pray for salvation for people. We talked about service. We're going to hear a report at the end today about some amazing things that happened in the last couple of weeks with um, Gillisville Elementary and um, Alan Sight from Ghostwilder Community is going to be here to talk to us about it. And I've got an email to read to you that's just unbelievable. And then Jeff last week talked about the need to put ourselves in community. And these are habits that we're trying to form of reading, memorizing, meditating on Scripture, speaking to God, exchanging our desires, our wishes for His, serving people, getting down to the place where we are helping people, not because we get anything out of it, because we're called to do it. And then living in real, genuine, unified community. But today we're going to look at one of the most overlooked habits that ought to be part of our lives, particularly in the faith tradition of which I grew up. Now, I don't know if you realize or not, but I grew up as a Southern Baptist. Anybody else here? Southern Baptist growing up? All right. Born and raised, right? I had a friend in college. I probably shouldn't tell this. I had a friend in college who said his granddad used to say, you know what I'd be if I wasn't Southern Baptist? I'd be ashamed. That's what I'd be. (laughs) I didn't say that. That was a friend's grandfather in college, all right? So I grew up Southern Baptist, and my biggest influence growing up Southern Baptist were my grandparents, Rex and Nell Edwards. Um, And Granny Nell, Gramps and Granny Nell, 
were vitally important to my life growing up as a Southern Baptist. But there, there was this interesting thing about they were both great people, unbelievable people. I've talked about Gramps and his mission trips and how he was the first person I ever knew that went on a volunteer mission trip with a, a, a local organization, a local association. My granny used to teach uh, children in Bible study and vacation Bible school until she literally couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I loved those two people. But here's the thing about my granny now. If you talk to her about what it meant to be a dedicated follower of Christ, more often than not, Granny Nell's list included more do-nots than do's. Like, you don't do this, and you don't do that, and that's not going to be in my house, and I would never have one of my grandchildren doing that. So you never had a deck of playing cards in Granny Nell's house. Uno or Rook, or Hoyle or Bicycle. They did not enter Granny Nail's house. Some of you are like, we still don't have them in mind. That's fine, all right? There was no comedy in Granny Nail's house. Unless it was Buck Owens and Roy Clark and Archie Campbell. And that was in there every week, right? Hee Haw was on the TV every week. And if, you were, if your mom and dad were on a date night and you were at Granny's house... You were hee-hawing. That's what was happening. Nothing else was going on. Supper was going to be done, finished, put up, cleaned up, pajamas on, sitting in the living room when they started to play that song. I got in big trouble one time because I delayed them being in front of the TV for hee-haw. All right? Couldn't dance. Now, that, that's not just my grandmother. That's kind of like the history of Southern Baptists, Right? But what it came down to me as, and again, I love my grandmother, I love my grandfather, I love who they are, and they were happy people, joyful people. But when you're a kid and you hear all these rules, it comes down that following Christ means you kind of set aside that fun side of who you are. And yet Scripture makes it abundantly clear that one of the most important habits in our lives is celebration. Why do we celebrate? Well, first of all, Scripture tells us we serve a celebrating God. Now, when I ask you to give me the characteristics of God, my guess is celebrating would be way down your list. Holy, righteous, omnipotent, serious kind of things. But Scripture teaches us that the God we serve is a celebrating God. God, in fact, is the most joyful being in the universe. So, okay, where is that, Pastor? Let me Tell me where that is. Well, three examples, and then uh, I'll give you a quote, but three examples. First of all, think about the prodigal son parable, right? So you know the prodigal son parable, right? The son asks for his inheritance, gets his inheritance, wasted away on all kinds of stuff that good Baptists don't do over in the far country. He comes back, and on his way back, the father, how does the father react? Well, how does he react? He hikes up his tunic, he runs, and then what do they do? They throw the biggest party anybody's ever seen. They were probably dancing at the party. They celebrated. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. This is talking about a day when he would restore the nation of Israel, when he would restore a people. It's talking about us 
We are not the physical nation of political Israel, but we are, as the church, God's chosen people in this day and time. This is talking about us. And it says, the Lord your God is among you. He was with us. He has sent his spirit. He is a warrior who saves. He is a God who fights the battles for us. And then it says, he will rejoice. Rejoice. You realize what the middle of that word is, don't you? Joy. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will delight in you with singing. Now those words, when you look in the original Hebrew, what it tells us is that when it says he will rejoice over you with gladness, it means literally that he will dance violently in circles in sheer exuberance. And when it says he will delight in you with singing, it means literally the phrase there, he will sing at the top of his lungs how much he loves you. So this is the picture of how God feels about you. He is jumping and spinning in wild excitement, singing at the top of his lungs. Now, most of us, when we think of God and how he views us, that is not the first picture that comes to mind. But scripture teaches us he is a joyous celebrating God. He loves you. He loves me. He celebrates us. We talked a little about Luke's basketball this year. He scored his first points um, two weeks ago in the history of any basketball game. Okay? And here's what was cool about it. One of my, one of my favorite moments from my kids' basketball stuff over the last few years. Um, So Luke gets the ball on the wing. He takes two dribbles in and puts up a layup. And it looks like he knows what he's doing. Like it looks smooth. And like that's what I've been trying to get him to do for 11 years. I'm like, Luke, there is not a kid that comes up to your chin on the team. Go to the basket, all right? And he puts it in. And we have this group of parents on our team. The the best player on our team is a kid that is named Carter. And he is like Allen Iverson. He's left-handed, he's short, and he just runs the lane, throws it up, gets hit and fouled, goes in, people go nuts. His dad loves Luke. And they had a whole section of Carter parents and family sitting in the stands. And when that shot went in, they went nuts. Nuts. And maybe so did I, right? And I was sitting on the id because I am um, Luke's defensive whisperer. Luke, like a lot of kids, has some focus issues at times. And on defense, that's particularly important. They're playing zone. He has to stay right where he's supposed to stay. And so the coach asked me, I wouldn't do this unless the coach asked, to sit whatever end we're playing defense and just say, Luke, stay there. Stay there, Luke. So I'm at the opposite of end of where he scored. He's coming back down. He comes back down. The kid that's guarding him is a kid that goes to school with him at Madison Creek. He comes back down the court. That kid gets the ball out near the three-point line and just throws it up. And you could hear gas like, oh, that's not. It's a close game. Like, oh, we don't need, he doesn't need to do that. And it goes in. And their fans absolutely erupt. And I watch as they go down the court. And Luke and Jackson, that's his name, they fist bump each other. It was the first time both of them had ever scored in a game. Right? Now, after the game, I said, Luke, did you, because this is the first game that I was the defensive whisperer for him, all right? I said, Luke, did it bother you that I was talking to you, or did you like it? He goes, I liked it. He goes, but I really liked it when I hit the shot, and I looked down there, and you were raising your fist in the air. <laughs> okay? That's what God does for us. 
He's the one pumping his fist in the air, overjoyed with excitement about who we are and what's going on. Look at what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 11. He says, I've told you these things. This is at the end. This is when he's getting ready to go and he's giving them all this stuff. He says, I've told you these things that your joy may be in you, that my joy, my joy, Jesus is full of joy, might be in you and your joy may be complete. C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. We serve a celebrating God. Secondly, we were created to celebrate. You and I, part of our creation is to celebrate. There's a part of us that likes joy, that likes to be lifted, that likes to have those inspirational stories, that likes to feel good, that if you read even research kind of stuff, there are parts of our brain that when we have a joyous experience, it is goes into a place of emotional high because we desire that, we want that. It is a part of our makeup. And no matter how much we try to convince ourselves that we are just not that good at that, it is a part of who we are. I mentioned kids in sports. They show you that it's just part of who we are. If you're around kids and you put on some music, it's got a little beat to it, they're not going to sit there and go, well, I really appreciate the complexity of the beat of this music. On Sunday mornings... um, the band practices for the for our 10:30 service or for this morning for this service and i'm always usually upstairs kind of getting stuff in the computer making sure stuff's right for the the sermon and the band's practicing and uh jimmy our piano player jimmy left apparently he thought i might talk about him um jimmy's kids for the last few weeks have been with him his two oldest that's probably because mama has said i've got this baby at home get the kids out of here right And when the music starts, they start moving. Because it's innately a part of who we are. I mentioned Luke. I have to talk about Eli if I talk about Luke. Eli's team yesterday was underdogs, one of the worst teams in the league record-wise this season, and they knocked off the number three team in the tournament. And at the end of the game, they were up by three, and one of their kids hit a huge three-pointer with about 25 seconds left. And I did not sit on the bench again and go, wow, that was an amazing little shot right there. Right? I went nuts. When my kid, it's his team, but it's not my kid. It's innately a part of who we are. John Ortberg says that the problem with people is according to Jesus is not that we are too happy for God's taste, but that we are not happy enough. Lewis Smead says it this way. He says, to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. Thirdly, question, why do we celebrate? Thirdly, because the Bible commands it. The Bible commands it. Paul in Philippians 4.4 says this. You know this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Joy Rejoicing is in the non-optional category for those that are followers of Jesus. Joylessness is a serious offense. It is a serious sin. 
We celebrate because we serve a celebrating God. We celebrate because we were created to celebrate. We celebrate because the Bible commands it. And fourthly, we celebrate because we are a critical people and we live among a critical people. I'm channeling the phrase from Isaiah in chapter 6 who says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But here's the truth. By nature, my sin nature wants me to be critical. And we live in a critical world. Facebook, um, some of you are part of that, some of you are not, but all these little groups have popped up to, to promote local businesses or help people find stuff around. And they're, you know, like we have one in our housing association, the Braxton Park um, Housing Association community right next to us, Woodland Wills. You get to be a part of both of them if you're right there in our area. Uh, there's a place called Hip Goodlettsville that talks about all things happening in Goodlettsville. And here's what has happened primarily in those two places as they become complaint desks. Well, I went here and so and so happened and I'm not sure I'm ever going to shop there again. Wouldn't believe the service I got yesterday with this. Don't know how I could ever go back to this establishment. Who's responsible for this? And there are occasionally people that go, well, I'm going to go against the tide and say something good. But for the most part, it's a series of complaints because that's who we generally are as people in our default because of our sin nature. I was a—I uh, have the fortune. I'm blessed. Um, I was nominated. I'm a part of the um, uh, leadership Goodlettsville class for this year, and so there are about uh, 23 of us that are from the community of Goodlettsville, work in the community, live in the community. Some few like me that are both work in and live in the community, and people from education, people from business, people from government, people from church life, people from all areas. We're in this group together, and uh, I was. Uh, last Thursday we had our second meeting and it was on the economy. It was economy day. And so we go all over looking at different things in the economy, things that you didn't know were in Goodlettsville, things that were just amazing. I walked into a place that had um, like 200 motorcycles they're storing for a company. Just amazing stuff all around. The amount of stuff you see. Um, Associated Warehouse Grocers over here that did close to a billion dollars in business last year. One of the places we went was Rivergate Mall. Talked to the leadership of Rivergate Mall. And here was an interesting thing. I said, somebody said, what's your, what's your biggest challenge at Rivergate Mall? And they said, unproven, untrue, online criticism. So I said, well, what do you mean by that? And so they started showing us some statistics. And do you know, just a little tip, a little thing for you. Did you know out of Rivergate Mall, the mall at Green Hills, and one and Opry Mills, that the safest of those three malls is Rivergate Mall. By far. The number of incidents in 2016 was significantly lower in Rivergate Mall than the other two. But they said if you were to ask the perception on the street because of online criticisms that are untrue and unfounded, people would say it's the most unsafe of the three. Because we live in a critical society. And the only way to transform criticism is through true hope and celebration. So that's why we do it. How do we do it? Psalm 100. I told you to turn there and some of you thought, are we even going to look at this thing? Yes, we are. Psalm 100. 
Psalm 100, by the way, was a psalm that was used. It's the only psalm, by the way, that is titled as a psalm of thanks in the 150 psalms. It's one of the most beloved psalms in Hebrew life. In fact, um, I want you to imagine for a minute you're a traveler going to the holy days of Israel in uh, Jerusalem. And as you're traveling up, it's hot, it's dusty. You've been on a long travel. Your family's griping. You're thinking, why in the world are we even doing this? You're wondering about turning around, but you thought we've come too far from that. And as you get close to the city, you start to hear singing. And it's not just any kind of singing. They're singing this particular hymn, this particular psalm. And as you get to the gate for the celebration of the year, they are at the gate singing Psalm 100 to you to encourage you that it is time to come and celebrate. Psalm 100, verse 1 says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Now, uh, some of you have a different translation. This is a brand new translation called the Christian Standard Bible from Lifeway. It'll be out in about a month. But I love the way they translate this particular verse because um, what, what, do, what do some of you have for Psalm 100 verse 1? Shout aloud. Anybody have a word other than shout? Make a joyful noise. That's the one you remember, right? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But here's the thing. When you look in the original Hebrew, that word shout, we'll get to this in just a minute, a little more in depth, but that word means shout. It means a war chant of victory. So let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Is there a theme you see here? Joy, excitement, exuberance, gladness. Next verse. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good and His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Give you four things that it tells us we ought to do as we celebrate the Lord. And we'll do these quickly. First of all, it tells us that if we're going to really serve the Lord, we need to shout. Now listen, I understand worship is serious business. That in an audience, we come before the Lord, before the Creator, the Sustainer, the Ruler of heaven and earth. The finite addresses the infinite, the weak before the omnipotent, the foolish before the all-wise, the sinful before the holy. And you would think that in light of that, the psalmist would say something like, in light of the fact that you are unholy and you are coming before a holy God, in light of the fact that you are a stained people coming before a pure God, in light of the fact that you are a foolish people coming before an all-wise God, in light of the fact that you are a weak people coming before an omnipotent God, you ought to come into his place with a somber attitude. But that is not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, let the whole earth shout. Some of you can't even say the word. Shout. Let me just ask you a quick question, okay? Not not being meddlesome, unless I need to be. What, What do we consider anything that's in the Bible? We consider it to be True. And if there's something commanded in the Bible, what do we think we ought to do? Do it. Right? Some of you are like, I don't like where this is going, Pastor. I'm not going to respond. Right? What does the Bible tell us in Psalm 100, verse 1, that we ought to do? Some of you are say, we ought to shout. Shout to the Lord. And here's the thing. If that was the only place that said it, We might go, well, it means every once in a while. Do you realize it's throughout the Psalms? 
shout is a soldier's war chant of victory. It is not calm. It is not contained. It is exuberant joy. And in case we think, well, he's, not talk, he's talking about those people that really like to do that. He says, let who shout triumphantly to God? All the earth. Now, we, this is another nine and a half year study we've done. In Scripture, when the word all is used, it means all. All. Worship ought to be joyful. I love it when our guys do bluegrass. I particularly like it because we got a Yankee Northerner New Yorker playing banjo. Right? And he's all right at it too. Pretty good. But here's the thing. I know some of you like it too because at the end you just spontaneously clap. Some of you forget you're in church. Like I'm excited. You know what? That's great. It's great. Worship is not sitting in a doctor's office. Worship is not trying to stay calm in traffic. And it's not a funeral dirge. It is a place for joyful shouts of praise. And here's what I want to tell you, and this includes me. Listen, listen, I'm not real comfortable being real energetic and boisterous. For one thing, I'm not very good at it. But we have become way too comfortable in being dignified. You know the story of David, right? Gets the ark, brings it back into town. He's dancing in his skivvies. He comes upstairs and his wife says, Look at you, made a fool of yourself in front of all of Israel. All those girls leering at you. Can't believe you'd do that. Do you remember what David said? He says, I would be even more undignified than this to praise my God. Now, I want to tell you real honestly, it's hard to get more undignified than dancing in your underwear out in the middle of the street. (laughs) I know the next step, and I don't think that's necessary, all right? Okay? His point is, when it comes to praising the Lord, our joy should have no limits. Shout to the Lord. We ain't even got half a verse into this thing. And I already got you uncomfortable. Shout for joy. The whole earth triumphantly to God. We need to come with an expectation that joy will break out in our midst. Secondly, it tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. Like, all right, this is a little easier. Serve there. That means go out and do works for God and gladness. That's not what it means in this psalm. In this psalm, it means that we ought to be active participants. They ought to be engaged in what is happening. That as we come together with God's people, we are to be here and be engaged and give our all to what is happening. That just because you're here in the room does not mean you are actually worshiping the Lord. It means that we are to engage in what is happening around us, that we are to interact with God's Word, that we are to interact with what is happening as we communicate God's Word, that we are to interact in the singing. People say, well, I'm not a very good singer. God doesn't care. 
Man, I am so appreciative for our band. I'm so appreciative for our Joyful Sounds Choir. I'm so appreciative for the people in our church that have amazing voices. I am not one of them. But you know what? That does not give me an excuse not to sing praises excitedly, jubilantly, loudly to the Lord. Because if God required our qualifications for us to do anything, we are wholly unqualified to do anything for Him. There is nothing in me that makes what I'm doing acceptable to Him. It is that He has saved me. And I want to sing about that. I walked in this morning, band was practicing, and I started singing upstairs. Diane and John always laugh and then say something about, you want a microphone, but I know under their breath they're thinking, please say no. (laughs) But I love it. I love it. Because I love my God. Come before Him with joyful songs. Serve the Lord. Now it also means there the word has this connotation of not only actively participating in the gathered assembly, but also actively participating in life. Like 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, that our lives ought to be lives of celebration. Our lives ought to be lives of worship. Romans 12.1 says that we are to be living sacrifices. And it says you ought to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Use what God has given you to give glory and honor to Him and celebrate every day what He has done for you. Now listen, it is very important, and you've heard this before, for me, you've heard it before in other areas, to differentiate what joy is from what happiness is. Because our world is fixated on happiness, and happiness is controlled by your circumstances. Joy is controlled by a settled understanding of who God is, what He has done for you, and His love for you. And you can have happiness fade away, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, joy ought to be a part of your life at every moment. And that does not give you an ability to say, well, I've got joy. It's just hard to come out. It ought to be seen and heard. He tells us to shout. He tells us to serve. And He tells us to know. Verse 3 says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. The truth there is that it says, know, understand that the Lord is God. You see, it's very important for us in our day and age to say that what we're talking about here is not ecstatic exuberance that is not tied to the reality of the gospel and who God is. It's the same thing that happens when Jesus is talking to the woman about worship. She tries to get the issue of her husband's off the table and says, well, where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus says, the time is coming and the time is here when it will not matter where you worship me, but there will be people, the true worshipers are those that worship me in spirit and in truth. And the idea there is that we will know God, that there is a foundation for what we are doing. And this is not some ecstatic utterance that has no basis in reality. It is a joyful celebration because the God of the universe has given his son for you and me. And if we have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we have been saved forevermore. And so this is not a detach your brain and just sing whatever you want to sing. This is be thoughtful in your joyful celebration. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. His people, the sheep of His pasture. And then verse 4, the last thing he says is to give thanks. Come into his gates, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. 
over the last few weeks, we've talked about these things that if I would have asked you at the beginning, what are those habits that Christians ought to have in their lives? My guess is it wouldn't have taken you long to get to prayer and to get to Bible reading and to get to service and to get to going to church and being in community. But it might have taken you a little while to get to celebration. But here's what I want to tell you. In a world where bad news is about 80% to 20 what we hear, in a world, there's a story in the New York Times today about the fracturing again of our nation and that people are getting more polarized even today than they were a month ago. Where criticism is the native tongue of many Americans. As believers, we ought to be holding out hope because of the joy we have. Can I tell you something? My joy is not based on my health, although I like being healthy. My joy is not based upon the status of my house or my finances, although I like for that stuff to be okay. My joy is not even based upon the health or the well-being of my children or my wife, although they are the vitally important people in my life. My joy is not based on the political decisions that people make. My joy is not based on the rising and the falling of the economy. My joy is based on Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection for me. And because of that, no matter what's happening around me, I can celebrate. Let's pray together.